Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, IEH Director Mark Katz speaks with Distinguished Professor of Physics and Astronomy and Senior Associate Dean for Natural Sciences, Chris Clemens. In their conversation, Dr. Clemens talks about his research creating technologies to study white dwarves and his experience of being a politically conservative faculty member in a predominantly left-leaning university population. Chris Clemens, welcome to the Institute podcast. Thank you very much for having me. You're an astrophysicist. You're a professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy here at UNC Chapel Hill. You're a former chair of that department, and you are the Senior Associate Dean for Natural Sciences in the College of Arts and Sciences, and you are a self-identified political conservative. So it's the last of those identities that I want to talk with you about today. But I want to actually start with the first, which is your identity as a scientist. So can you tell us, as a scientist, as an astrophysicist, what do you do? Most of my work in astrophysics nowadays is in two areas. Uh, I'm an equipment builder. That is, I built a spectrograph that's used on our four-meter telescope in Chile. Uh, we continue to maintain that spectrograph and update it, and I work on a variety of other smaller instruments and instrument projects uh, to build better ways to disperse light, uh, essentially taking light apart into its component colors to see what the chemical elements are and the velocities of distant stars and galaxies are. My own scientific work is something called asteroseismology, which you can pick apart and understand is to look into the interiors of stars by looking at their resonant mechanical properties. Uh, and that would be impossible if you had to go and ring a star, but they ring by themselves sometimes. And so we use the uh, oscillations that we can measure to probe the interior density structure. So you talked about oscillations, and I have to say I'm a, I'm a professor of music, and I, when I hear oscillations, I often think of music. So is there music of the spheres? There is. Uh, there, the oscillations we see have overtones, just like you would have on the string of an instrument. Some of the uh, oscillations in the stars I study, which are white dwarf stars, are gravity wave modes, and unlike a string that you pluck, the restoring force is not pressure, it's, uh, it's buoyancy, the same thing that makes a cork bob up and down. And they have a very strange dispersion relationship, so if you could hear the music, it might not sound like music you're used to. I would be very interested to hear that, uh, that kind of music. I take it this is something you're very passionate about and you've been passionate about for a long time. Can you tell us what drives you as a, as a physicist? What are the questions that really uh, spark your imagination? It is physics. Laboratory is only so good at measuring the properties of the material world. Uh, you cannot create every density, every temperature. Stars are interesting laboratories because in the core of a star, especially a dense star like a white dwarf, you will reach densities we have never reproduced in the lab. Uh, that means you're in an unexplored domain as far as physicists are concerned. Our theory extends into that domain. We think it works, but the only test really is to have an observation. These stars provide a laboratory for observations that you cannot make because you cannot recreate the material. Is a lot of this theoretical then? It's a com combination. I don't actually do the theoretical part. Mm -hmm. But for instance, uh, to predict what might be the 
oscillation modes of a star requires a very detailed theoretical model. In that model are some simple physics, gravity, buoyancy, as I was talking about. Hydrostatic equilibrium is the, is the main equation. We, th we think those are well known. But then there are other physics, things like the equation of state. What is the pressure of a gas at a given density and temperature? Those are calculated. Uh, when, you, when you leave the realm in which we've measured them, it's entirely theory. If that theory is wrong, the star's oscillations won't match the theoretical model. And putting that together can lead you in interesting directions. I see. So as uh, someone who builds equipment and designs equipment, you have to work very closely with theorists and, and vice versa. That's right. So it's, it's all, it's like anything. All the pieces have to be there. Uh, you need an instrument you understand that's not delivering artifacts but real measurements. You need a theory to compare in the domains where you don't have measurements, the measurements too. And then you need very good measurements, both in known and unknown domains. It's, it's interesting because people think of it as an experimental science, but it's not in the normal sense of the word in experimental science. In astronomy, there's no control. You're not, you're not controlling the experiment in your lab in any way. So we cannot, for instance, arrange the experiment to happen. We have to wait and watch and hope that nature does something interesting. And, and recently, uh, my research has veered into a new area because nature does some very interesting things. When the sun becomes a white dwarf, the planets will be in new orbits because the sun will lose part of its mass. This will cause a new epoch of scattering asteroids, comets, and those will fall down at the, what used to be the sun, but it will only be the size of the Earth, so they, they won't hit it. But they may be crushed in the gravity and eaten. And this is happening around other white dwarf stars. We see planet rubble falling onto the stars. And why that's interesting is we can measure the composition of the planets that used to be there. Uh, and so exoplanetary abundances of elements is something I never thought in my lifetime we would measure because you imagine going to the exoplanet, digging it up, and putting it in a mass spectrometer. But the spectrograph I built, not intending it for this use, is actually measuring the lines absorbed by metals that are falling onto white dwarf stars from crushed up planetary rubble. That's fascinating. So you essentially helped create a new field within astrophysics? Well, I didn't. Uh, other people had noticed this. We, uh, we had a good tool for it, so we joined them in their mm -hmm. efforts. So there are about 20 measurements of exoplanetary rubble composition. And the answer is most of these things have the same composition as the Earth in, in bulk. If you just stirred the Earth up and dropped it on the sun, uh, you would see the same kind of elements. There are a lot of interesting ramifications for that, uh, that research uh, that I'd love to talk with you about. But I do want to pivot talking about politics and political identity. How do you define for yourself conservatism? Because you identify in that way. So what does, what does that mean for you? Right, I think that's an interesting question because when you hear on a college campus someone is conservative, because most people are not, they have a, maybe a cartoon view of conservatives. There is but one kind, and it's the kind that we imagine in our heads. Someone uh, whose pickup truck is bristling with armaments and maybe has a mildly offensive bumper sticker on it. Uh, and that's just a cartoon, right? So it is a good question. I think my conservatism came about both from, from where I was raised, but also just from reading. Our, our uh, educational system in Mississippi, where I was brought up, was a little bit behind the times. 
in as much our government class still emphasized the reading and memorization of the Constitution and Bill of Rights and so forth. And I think to read those documents freshly as, as a 10th or 11th grader is to recalibrate your political beliefs. If you buy into the arguments about government that are in the founding documents of this nation, uh, what you see is a distrust of power uh, collected together in a, in a government that, that can enforce laws and or confiscate money and or do the things that governments do. So it pushes you in a, in a rather libertarian or conservative direction. And so I define conservatism as distinct from libertarian as sort of suspicious of the role of government, not exclusively believing government is bad or that it shouldn't do things, but always asking people to make the case. So my default position, if someone says the government ought to be doing more, is to ask the question, what is it doing already? Is it effective? And is it the most effective way or could some other way be found where collective action without government intervention could solve the problem? What that normally does is drive the question closer and closer to the problem. Uh, the solution may live much closer than Washington. So a localism is a kind of conservatism. Uh, I, think, I think that's not only a conservative position. Uh, you can see a very progressive movement toward localism. But I think this, uh, this idea that the people nearest the problem know the most about it and the smallest structure that works to solve the problem is the one you ought to have. That's, that's how I would articulate a conservative position. So you're talking in the examples that you cited about federal or state or local government. What about on the university campus? How does your conservatism reflect or affect uh, the way you operate as a professor, as a chair, as a dean now? Well, I think it reminds me that we are not entitled to the almost $500 million that are, that comes from the taxpayers and is sent to this campus every year. That is, we need continually to be justifying why that amount of money is necessary to do what we do, how we're spending it wisely, how it is serving the objectives of the people who gave it to us. We hear a lot of complaint about anti-intellectualism in the legislature when we hear that funding is not increasing. It hasn't really gone down recently, but it hasn't gone up either. Uh, and that is a kind of erosion. Well, I, I don't see that as an anti-intellectualism necessarily. What are we doing with the money? Are we spending it efficiently? Would the people of North Carolina give it voluntarily or does it have to be confiscated in order for it to be used to the mutual benefit through this educational institution? If we can't think and respond intelligently in those ways, then I think we're doing everyone a disservice. So that's, the, that's how my, my conservatism is one that says, I know where that money came from. It was taken from people. They didn't give, give it over voluntarily. Uh, no one hires their tax accountant to increase their taxes. No one fills out their forms at home in such a way as to give more than necessary to the government. This is evidence that we don't want to be giving it. It's being extracted. Uh, is it being extracted and used well? We need to explain why that's true. Uh, so I, I, that may not be a conservative position, but it derives from this idea that people own the things that they've earned and that when the government goes and takes them and says we're going to do a good, 
the good may not be self-explanatory. It needs to explain itself. So you have not hidden your identity as a conservative. It's something that you've mentioned to me before um, voluntarily. But I, but I understand there are other uh, colleagues of ours on campus who don't feel comfortable doing that. Do you talk to people in that position? Do they, what do they say about their decision not to disclose their political leanings? Right. Let me, let me talk about my own position first. Uh, even when I arrived here and did not have tenure, I decided I needed to live who I was at all times. I don't like the idea that I'm one person in one place and another in another place. And of course, you, you can do that simply by remaining s- silent and let everyone presume. But it's a very presumptive place. If you get a collection of typical faculty together and they begin to discuss politics, there is an assumption that everyone in the room agrees with the default progressive liberal university faculty position. Um, you know, you can almost write down what that is. You can meet someone and ask one question, almost know their entire political belief. You know, I don't want to overgeneralize, but I think there is a common wisdom, if you like, on politics. If you just let everyone presume that you agree, you're setting up a not very good situation when they may find out that you don't agree. Or you're giving tacit approval to something that you find either wrong, incorrect, or maybe even abhorrent. Because I think there are positions in the in sort of the common political liberal viewpoint that, that I find not only questionable politically, but morally and ethically. And I feel it's a kind of moral compromise not to speak up. Obviously, you speak up in a way that's polite. So I just made the decision to speak out. I'm lucky to live in a place, in a department, and in a field where it almost doesn't matter. Um, we're not working on these questions. So there's not a a lot of professional risk in doing that. The faculty that I've talked to who remain in deep cover as as conservatives and even as registered Republicans in some cases are in departments where they feel that if they revealed that, it would not be good for them, that it might have some consequence that uh, they can't anticipate. Whether that's true or not, I, I can't comment, but they at least believe that. And I can tell you the ones who are the most insecure about revealing that are women faculty. We know that in academia, there there are challenges that women face. It it was a male-dominated and is in many places still a male-dominated business for a long time. And uh, the challenges that go with being woman faculty, I think, are compounded if you are conservative woman faculty. And so I think they don't speak. So I was imagining that people who might not share their political identities with their colleagues, knowing you might might seek some advice. Has that happened? It has happened because I am out as a conservative that people have come to me and expressed a solidarity about that, but not very often. Recently, I took it upon myself to try to identify some more conservatives for reasons I could explain, and I found a surprising reluctance for any kind of fellowship to form around that, uh, there's, there's still this timidity about, about being openly conservative on a college campus. So there's been some discussion about the possibility of creating a conservative center or program or initiative at UNC, like what's been happening at uh, other campuses um, around the country. For example, there's the James Madison program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton. So 
I understand you actually visited Princeton to see and learn something about that center. So I'm curious what you think the the value of these programs is and whether you think this is something that UNC should be investigating. Well, I think the value of the programs that exist are they bring this viewpoint much closer to people who don't share it, and they give students an opportunity to hear more than one side of something. There is a degree to which we fail uh, in our education of progressive or liberal students by not challenging their viewpoints as much as we would, say, a conservative student. I think it sharpens students to have to defend themselves, uh, defend their positions, and maybe it changes their positions. So a value of having an institute, and and I did go to Princeton, and this is a point that uh, Robbie George, who we met with, made very clearly. Uh, The people who come to the events at the James Madison program are not people who necessarily agree with the positions that are being presented. They're coming because they haven't found those positions articulated well on campus, and they want to understand whether they are correct, whether they should be confronting their own beliefs, and to have a discussion, a more lively discussion than you can have with someone who agrees with everything that that you think. So I think they do bring a value. That being said, I would want to know what is the intellectual center of what we're contemplating here. I don't think at a state university uh, we should be trying to establish uh, something based on its politics. It should be based on an intellectual interest and then attempt to get people whose viewpoints are different than the ones we have now around whatever subject that is. So are there ways that we can accomplish that short of forming a center here? I think we're accomplishing it already. Uh, You may be aware, I'm sure you're aware, of our PPE program, Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. This is a program that looks at many of the same issues some of the other centers you were discussing look at. They ask, what is the role of free markets? Is capitalism always bad? Can capitalism be a force for good? Is, is capitalism and, and markets really only about game theory? Is it about a way to solve problems with collective wisdom? These are interesting questions. They should not be off limits, and on this campus, they're not. We have an entire program and a very good anthology produced, uh, co-authored by Jeff Sayer McCord, that, that does bring political questions uh, into the fore that are, that are not always from the standard liberal progressive perspective. So I wonder if there are particular risks in some of these programs that are popping up around the university. One thing that strikes me in particular is when I, when I read an article about uh, the James Madison program, that uh, its website says its uh, mission is to um, explore enduring questions of American constitutional law and Western political thought. So the first part of that, of course, seems innocuous to me, but sometimes what I've seen is um, a kind of marrying of conservative ideals with so-called Western thought. And there's been pushback towards that because Sometimes when people say Western thought or Western civilization or Western ideals, it tends to stand in for a fairly narrow view. In other words, white male is civilization or Eurocentric civilization. So I'm just wondering if, if you see that as a risk or have seen that as, as part of a problem uh, that should be recognized or addressed. 
Yeah, I think I'd like to dis- – I would distinguish at this point between Western civilization as an intellectual area and Western civilization as a brand. I think what you're saying is often people will say Western civilization as a way of identifying a core set of beliefs that, that may or may not embrace the East, for instance, or as you say, is rooted in a kind of patriarchal view of things. I don't think that's what we're talking about. And even if we had something that was called Western studies or Western civilization, it would not be about that. Western civilization is very, very interesting and deep as a subject. I was just, in fact, looking at some things about astronomy and how astronomy got kicked off before Copernicus. And as everyone knows, you know, astronomy, the ability to actually calculate locations of planets, which the Greeks could do, which Ptolemy had, had conquered and written down in, a, in, a, in the Almagest, only came to us through our interaction with Islam and with Arabic philosophers and scientists. But we sometimes forget the degree to which their mathematics, which was able to improve upon Greek mathematics, came from Hindu influence because they lived between the East and the West, the Far East and the West. And so in Western civilization, if you're studying something as it sounds as Western as Copernicus, Galileo, and Newton, the roots of that are actually connected to the East and uh, to Arabic culture and history. And I think that's fascinating. The university, as we live in it and know it, is a Western creation. If you're studying the university, you're studying the West. If you're living in the university and its ideals, those ideals are Western ideals. Our belief in academic freedom, our eschewing of theocracies is a Western principle. Our liberalism around personal freedom, these are all sort of Western ideas influenced, of course, over time by interactions with the rest of the world. So, so to say somehow that studying the West is narrow, no. It can be a brand that is attracting people who see it in a narrow and prescriptive way. And so I think there is a danger of that. But I think we should, we should be talking more about Western studies than we do, not the exclusive kind of Western studies. But to know deeply about ourselves is the most important thing because we really can't, we can't even criticize. We can't continue to be critical of our own culture if we don't understand what its basic principles are. And God forbid if we should abandon the basic Western principles uh, in our criticism and kind of throw, throw out the baby with the bathwater, then I don't know what the university would look like. Academic freedom itself would be in peril. So I'm very much in favor of us as a, as a group, as a faculty, embracing some intellectual areas and inviting people who don't agree with us to come be on our faculty and discuss these interesting areas. And I think many of these interesting areas are, are Western. Chris Clements, thank you very much for a fascinating conversation. Thank you for coming to see us at the Institute. Thank you very much. Check back at ieh.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IEH underscore UNC.
in uh, I was in the library as an undergraduate. Uh, there was this old library. I really loved to go in there and just wander in the stacks. And I and I flipped out a book that looked really old, uh, and it wasn't a very interesting book. So I said, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna check that out. But I started thinking uh, how busy you are in college and then in academic life. I looked at this shelf and I said, Well, how how many books can I read possibly and still not fail out of school? Probably no more than one a month. Mm-hmm. And how old am I going to live to be? Uh, probably 80, let's mm-hmm. say. And I'm 20, so that's 60 times 12. That's not very many books. And so I said, I'm going to count the books on this one shelf in this huge library. Uh, and it was about the number I would read in my life if I read a book a month. And it was after that that I changed the way I read. I, I, would, huh. I would read a, about half a chapter. And if it wasn't good, if it didn't seem like it was going to be significant, discard, go to the next, because... Life is too short for Life bad is too books. short for bad books. 